there was the sound of rattling chains and the clanking of massive bolts drawn back. A key was turned with the loud grating noise of long disuse, and the great door swung back. Within stood a tall old man, clean-shaven save for a long white moustache, and clad in black from head to foot, without a single speck of colour about him anywhere. He held in his hand an antique silver lamp, in which the flame burned without a chimney or globe of any kind, throwing long quivering shadows as it flickered in the draught of the open door. The old man motioned me in with his right hand with a courtly gesture, saying in excellent English but with a strange intonation, Welcome to my house. Enter freely, and of your own free will. He made no motion of stepping to meet me, but stood like a statue, as though his gesture of welcome had fixed him into stone. The instant, however, that I had stepped over the threshold, he moved impulsively forward, and holding out his hand, grasped mine with a strength which made me wince, an effect which was not lessened by the fact that it seemed cold as ice, more like the hand of a dead than a living man. Again he said, Welcome to my house. Enter freely. Go safely, and leave something of the happiness you bring. The strength of the handshake was so much akin to that which I had noticed in the driver, whose face I had not seen, that for a moment I doubted if it were not the same person to whom I was speaking. So, to make sure, I said interrogatively, Count Dracula? When novelist Bram Stoker published these words in 1897, he would have had no idea of the cultural impact which they were to make over the following century and more. In Dracula, Stoker created what to many would become an archetypal image of the creature known as the vampire. The roots for Stoker's vampire, of course, have been discussed many times. We know all about Vlad the Impaler, and we have a good knowledge of the Transylvanian connections. The horror vampire and the vampire as a literary device are also well covered. But to find out more, we need to go further back, and we need to look across the diversity of our world's cultures. As with many of these other creatures, the folkloric approach will allow us to unpick the origins, look at the details, and discover that as you travel the world, the law follows you knits together, and offers some remarkable parallels between cultures. The vampire in our culture is a broad subject, and something to really get your teeth into. Welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Folklore. The beliefs, traditions and culture of the people. Passed on in the most part through the spoken word, folklore expresses our values, our shared ideas with others. It is both how we were and how we are. Without a record, our customs and traditions may become lost to us in the present, but under the surface we still draw on them. We still know. 
It's time to recall our forgotten history and to record the new. This is the Folklore Podcast. Hello, I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. And yes, I apologise for the pre-title pun. But it is the case that the topic of vampires is very broad and very involved. I can probably only scratch the surface in the time available. To do more would require a vampire-themed podcast in its own right. But to offer the best chance of learning as much as possible on this theme... Vampires is going to be a two-part examination. In the next edition of the podcast written by me, in two shows' time, we will look at the death aspects of vampire lore, from deviant burials to dispatching a vampire. But in this episode, we will look at the opposite end of the story and examine the origins for the vampire cross-culturally. Bram Stoker sets his seminal work in Transylvania, which is a part of modern-day Romania, and of course there is a strong cultural association with the vampire in that country. The country itself has one of the widest bodies of folklore anywhere on the planet, due in no small measure to the constant battles for the land between various foreign powers historically. This, coupled with constant internal political upheaval, made Romania a very turbulent part of the world. The customs and traditions of the people, therefore, became a vital part of daily life for providing much-needed stability to the area, and this means that they became very deeply embedded. Stoker used these traditions to such great effect that many people believe that the undead creatures originated in Romania itself, This is an understandable leap to make, but is historically not the case. We find origins all over the world for similar creatures. As you would expect for an area so rich in custom, there are a number of variants of the vampire creature to be found in Romania, including the Moroni, the Zmiu and the Priculix. The Nosferat, also known as the Nosferatu, a name which should be very familiar to most, is one of a couple of Romanian vampires which offer those tantalising links to other areas of folklore which, as I often say, make folklore itself such a rich and fascinating field to study. The Nosferat emerges as the illegitimate child of parents who are themselves illegitimate. It is a vampire whose image is associated with lust and sex. As well as the traditional blood-sucking aspect, the Nosferat also partakes in wild orgies with living humans. The male Nosferat is capable of impregnating women, whose children, when born, will be covered with hair and will become either witches or maroi, a type of live vampire. We can see in these themes many parallels with the motifs of the incubus and succubus, the medieval demonic trope which was ascribed to the phenomenon of sleep paralysis, 
and which I've covered in previous episodes of the podcast. Sleep paralysis, of course, is very much connected with the dream state, and we find intriguing links between the vampire and the incubus and succubus in forms other than the Nosferat too. When looking at the vampire in folklore, we are usually looking at a creature that does not often travel in a physical form, but rather incorporeally. The 1732 report, Visum et Repertum, describes an attack by a vampire on a woman named Stanaka in this way. Stanaka lay down to sleep 15 days ago, fresh and healthy, but at midnight she started up out of her sleep with a terrible cry, feared and trembling, and complained that she had been throttled by the son of a high duck by the name of Milo, who had died nine weeks earlier, whereupon she experienced a great pain in her chest and become worse hour by hour, until finally she died on the third day. The parallels with the symptoms of sleep paralysis and their folkloric readings are notable. Romania also provides another variant of the vampire which we may link to lore which we have previously examined. The type of Romanian undead known as the Varcolocai is said to be culturally responsible for eating the sun and the moon, and so is a creature mythologically tied to the astronomical eclipse, another significant natural event, the folklore of which we have looked at before. The Varcolocai, a similar variant of which is also found in Greece as the Vricolocasis, note the linguistic root in the name was described by Agnes Mergosi, writing in the journal Folklore in the 1920s, with reference to the practice of eating the moon. They are recognised by their pale faces and dry skin, and by the deep sleep into which they fall when they go to the moon and eat it. When the spirit of the Varkalak wants to eat the moon, the man to which the spirit belongs begins to nod, falls into a deep sleep as if he had not slept for weeks, and remains as if dead. If he is roused or moved, the sleep becomes eternal, for, when the spirit returns from its journey, it cannot find the mouth out of which it came, and so cannot go in. It is examples such as these two which lead some researchers to suggest that we should look towards shamanism for answers in understanding the folklore of the vampire. The most common form of vampire in Romania itself is the strigoi, or in the feminine form, strigoica. This is a dead vampire, as opposed to the living variety such as the moroi. Strigoi are commonly described in lore as having red hair and blue eyes, and are notable for possessing two hearts. Many of the ways in which one is said to be turned into a strigoi appear to have much to do with acts seen as wrong or immoral. For example, suicide, witchcraft practices, perjury or other criminal acts. This is not unusual, as we have often considered the use of folklore for the teaching of morality. There are also more folkloric ways to become a strigoi, such as being the seventh son, a cat jumping over your corpse, or having been born with a call. Something that, interestingly, was noted in the last edition of the podcast, looking at the life of Canadian folklorist Helen Creighton, as being a piece of good fortune.
the blue eyes of the Strigoi crop up in other vampire lore also. In areas of Greece and the Balkans, for example, it was thought that people with blue eyes would become vampires after death. In some more extreme cases, it was said that blue-eyed people were already members of the undead. These beliefs would come about from the fact that blue eyes are a very recessive gene in this area of the world. The red hair also as a vampire trait is as well found in the Greek and Serb cultures, among others. It was because of the description of Judas Iscariot as having red hair in the biblical stories that the clan of vampires calling themselves the children of Judas arose. Folklore is still very much a part of life in Romania, to the extent that even ten years ago doubts were cast on the ability of the country to function as part of the European Union when they were bidding for entry in 2007, because so many still believed that they were infested with Strigoi. The country was judged by many to be backward because of this. We may note that as well as in the Slavic countries, and with the idea of being turned into a Strigoi if a cat jumps over your corpse, similar traditions were believed in China, which again makes us stop to wonder either how these ideas travelled in earlier times, or how such similar concepts sprang up independently in different geographical locations. In fact, a corpse that was jumped over by any animal was deemed to be at risk of becoming undead, but cats and dogs were particularly sighted. In Russian folklore, vampires were said to have once been people who had rebelled against the organised religion of the Russian Orthodox Church. Again, we see these themes of morality and of what is correctly Christian behaviour that so often come up in folk tales. Or, alternatively, that the vampire had once been a witch. The links between witches and vampires in many cultures' folklore are quite strong, and this is not overly surprising when we examine the etymology of the vampire as a named creature. In the English language, the word vampire emerges in 1734, spelt with a Y rather than the modern common I spelling, if we're referencing the Oxford English Dictionary. As this usage occurs in a travelogue, then it is likely that the term emerges from other similar terms across Europe or beyond. And indeed, the terms in the French and German come themselves from Serbia, and that from the Slavic nations, where we find many variants of the term vampire or wampir. Other countries in the same geographical area use the term upir, which comes from the old Slavic in the east. There is one theory which proposes from this that the term upir borrows from the same term in the Turkic languages that is the area spreading from western China to Mongolia, and taking in peoples from eastern Europe, the Mediterranean and Siberia, where Ubia translates as witch. Additionally, an anti-pagan treatise called the Word of St Gregory, dating from sometime between the 11th and 13th centuries, reports the pagan worship of Upiri, which appears to be an early use of the Old Russian, and may also have links to witches. The evidence in these cases is tantalising, but not clear. But it is easy to speculate that these may be part of the reason why we find links between vampires and witches. 
For similar tropes to the vampire, of course, we may look across early cultures from much earlier times, as the idea of the undead creature has really been around for millennia. Ancient Greeks, Romans and Hebrew cultures, amongst others, all have demons or spirits which follow similar lines to the emergence of the more modern vampire form. But, speaking purely folklorically, the emergence of what we know as a vampire recorded in lore emerges from the 1700s onwards, in large part due to this being the time from which oral traditions in cultural groups begin to be recorded and published. In the same way that mass hysteria began to form around accusations of witchcraft, of course, in the early modern period, once this recording began to happen, we find a similar issue with vampirism in some areas, with public trials or executions taking place. The appearance of the vampire itself does of course have its stereotypes, and many of these come from the portrayal of Stoker's vampire by Bella Lugosi on film, and also from stage adaptations created by the English playwright Hamilton Dean. But in the folklore record, traditions and descriptions of the appearance of vampires are naturally much more diverse. Across Europe, we do find more common elements than elsewhere. Here, the vampire is often described as bloated, with a ruddy complexion which was ascribed to the recent drinking of blood. Blood was often seen coming from the mouth or nose if the vampire was viewed in its coffin, and the teeth or nails would be well grown. Fangs, although a traditional element of modern vampire portrayal, are actually generally not found in the folklore record. Many of these aspects, of course, we know come from a poor historic understanding of the way that bodies would decompose, in the same way that demons were blamed for sleep paralysis episodes. Corpses swell under decomposition, which can force blood from the orifices, and the skin and gums may contract due to fluid loss, which we know gives the appearance of teeth or nails growing. The reasons for this, although medically obvious now, would have been seen quite differently in less enlightened times. A less complete understanding of medical conditions would have meant that there was also a greater risk of premature burial, where people who may have fallen into a coma due to illness and subsequently come round, having already been pronounced dead and put into a coffin. This has been suggested as a theory for vampiric belief, with the idea that scratch marks on the inside of a coffin could be explained this way, along with blood on the face where people may have hit their heads when struggling, having been interpreted as feeding. These ideas are less likely, as they do not adequately take into account the relatively short amount of time that someone may be able to survive being buried alive in the way that a corpse is normally interred. Another theory that vampire belief may stem from the medical condition of porphyria, the craving of heme from the blood, and sufferers seeking to replace their heme supply, has been widely dismissed because of misunderstandings about how the disease actually presents. This theory also confuses the folkloric vampire with the fictional version. This is something that we must be very careful to avoid doing, as the two are quite distinct. Fictional vampires are usually portrayed as bloodsuckers, but the vampire of folklore is not associated with this trait in many cases. 
A similar suggestion that sufferers of porphyria having sensitivity to sunlight being relevant again confuses the vampire of folklore with its fictional cousin. Despite all of this, the theory was of course picked up by the media and was quite well reported. For this reason, we will find that it enters into more modern folklore and begins to blur some edges between the two types. The ideas of blood drinking come more from ancient demonic beliefs than they do from law surrounding the vampire, but similarities between the two mean that the idea has been mapped onto some vampire traditions in the folklore record as well as the fictional variant. Most nations have some kind of mythology surrounding blood-drinking supernatural creatures, but Persia sees the evidence of some of the earliest. Shards of pottery recovered from archaeological digs show images of creatures attempting to drink blood from men. The demon Lilitu, which is found in ancient Babylonian areas, was often said to feed on the blood of babies to survive. This particular supernatural creature is intrinsically linked with Lilith in the Hebrew, which again came up in the folklore of the succubus, which I've previously discussed. Yet more of these folkloric ties. The areas around Babylonia and Assyria are also home to the shape-shifting estries, female demons said to roam in the twilight. Similar creatures emerge from Greek and Roman mythology, again in some cases feasting on the blood of children while they slept at night. And not all of these creatures were necessarily humanoid. For example, the Striges had the bodies of birds and later became taken into Roman mythology as the bird creature the Strix, which fed on human flesh and blood. Other cultures' vampires also have an appearance which varies from the human. Much like the children of the Nosferat, who were born covered with hair, the Quang Shi is a Chinese demonic vampire, and so seems to have crossovers with the ancient beliefs and more early period folklore. The creature evolves from a demon inhabiting a human corpse. It is tall, with white or green-white hair which covers the whole body, long claws, and in this case, fangs. In early examples of this creature, it is said to have the ability to fly. A tale said to have taken place in the year 1741 relates that a shepherd sought shelter in a temple dedicated to three heroes. The locals warned the man off, telling him that the temple was haunted, but the shepherd ignored their warnings and moved into the building, placing his sheep upon the veranda. Around the hour of midnight, a creature emerged from the pedestals of the statues representing the three heroes, which matched the description of a Quang Shi. The shepherd escaped and hid in the branches of a tree, as the creature seemed to be incapable of leaving the temple building. The following day, he called for the local magistrate, who discovered the body of a creature with green hair. He burned the body, from which a large quantity of blood disgorged from the remains. In some areas of Africa, such as southeastern Ghana and Togo, the Adzi is a vampire spirit living amongst the tribal sorcerers of the Yu people. It flies in the form of a firefly, but will change into a human if caught. 
It has also been reported as changing from a noble-looking human to a humpbacked dwarf. As well as drinking blood, it will also feed on palm oil and coconut water, and, like the Greco-Roman mythological creatures, preys on children. Other vampires found in Africa include the Impundulo, Mau Mau, Ramanga and Asanbosam. This latter example is found in very similar geographical locations to the Adzi. It is said to live in deep forests where it is usually sighted by hunters. Although generally human in appearance, its teeth are iron and its legs have hook-like appendages which it uses when hanging from a tree to catch people walking underneath. Other vampires may take far less human form altogether. Everyone knows about the breed of bat which takes its name from the vampire, but there are examples of vampires taking the form of other animals. The cat of Nabashima is a Japanese vampire demon which took a feline shape and preyed on the prince of Heizen, a member of the Nabashima family. Although the vampire cat of the story was slain, the people of Nabashima have still had a belief in the idea of the creature, and the last recorded sighting was as recently as 1929. Malaysian folklore has the demonic vampire of the Bajang, which appeared as a pole cat and was said to threaten children. This, as we can see, is a common trope across many cultures. The Bajang is said to come from the body of a stillborn child, which may be compelled out of the corpse using spells and incantations. Once formed, the creature may be enslaved and kept as a kind of familiar, in the same manner as witches. It would be kept in a bamboo vessel called a tabong, where it should be fed eggs and milk. If insufficient food is provided, the bajang may turn on its owner. Wizards are often the owners of these creatures, and they may send the bajang to inflict harm on their enemies, who will suffer from a mysterious and usually life-threatening illness. We can see many parallels here with early modern era witchcraft accusations in Western cultures, and in fact modern witchcraft accusations in other cultures. The Bajang is a male creature, and the Malaysian equivalent in female form is the Lang Sur. Always portrayed as beautiful, the Lang Sur is created when a woman either dies in childbirth or following the shock of discovering that her child is stillborn. In this latter case, the child is also transformed into a vampire, known as a Pontianak. The Lang Sur has long black hair which hangs down to her ankles, long nails and green robes. Again, we may find parallels if we think about the folklore. The long black hair might put us in mind of Japanese ghoul lore. Consider, for example, the demonic character in The Ring. The green robes seem to tie in with the green hair of the Chinese Quangxi. Green is certainly very important in folklore and tradition, the green man symbol and the jack in the green being two important customs drawing on this colour. The hair of the Lang Sur is particularly long because it covers a hole in the back of the creature's neck through which she drinks the blood of children. The Lang Sur also feeds on fish, and so is often reported near the mouths of rivers. 
vampires may appear in other very varied forms. There are a number of killer butterfly stories, for example. But to demonstrate just how difficult it can be to categorise a vampire into any particular form, Yugoslavia also has a myth surrounding a vampire watermelon. This last one probably needs a little more by way of explanation. The concept comes out of gypsy lore, and the gypsies get a bad press in many places, often being depicted as peasant folk with no intelligence or overly superstitious. In Dracula, they are the victims of vampires. But, in fact, the gypsy peoples have an old and proud cultural heritage. As such great preservers of customs and tradition, the gypsies have a wide knowledge of the undead, and it may be partly due to their extensive travelling that the fear of the undead as entities is so worldwide. With their origins coming from India, they travelled west and north into Europe and brought many stories with them. The gypsy term for the vampire is mullo, and the creature is brought into existence when a person has died due to unnatural causes or by the improper use of a rite. There is no set description for a mullo. In some regions they are invisible, in others they appear as human. They may be part animal in still other places, and among Swedish gypsy folk, for example, they can change into an animal. The most common animal form that they take is that of the wolf, which should suggest obvious parallels with another folkloric creature. There are also, once again, links with sex, and the lovers of a mullo, male or female, will become exhausted and often die. This union, however, would produce a child known as a dampir, but which in some gypsy areas was called a vampire or vampuera for a female equivalent. The children were good at tracking down and destroying their vampire families, and many people in Serbian and Yugoslavian areas made good livings as vampire hunters. Only the Dampir could see the enemy, because of course in Serbian law the undead are invisible. The last known Dampir ceremony was held in Kosovo in 1959. Going back to the fruit connection, being such extensive travellers, many gypsy groups would absorb elements of the cultures through which they passed, as you would expect. Sometimes they would even end up taking up the religious practices of an area, such as converting to Christianity or becoming Muslims. It is the Muslim gypsies of Yugoslavia who hold the belief that both watermelons and pumpkins could turn into vampires if they were kept for too long and rotted. It is clear that the origin myths of the vampire as an undead creature are rich and varied as we travel around the world. Equally diverse are the methods by which you may protect yourself from such creatures, and how to dispel them more permanently. In the second part of this examination, we will look at those aspects of the vampire, along with death customs more generally, and other associated law. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This edition of the Folklore Podcast was written and presented by me, Mark Norman. Research assistance and the voice of the Dracula extract at the start of this podcast 
was provided by Tracy Norman. The Folklore Podcast is created and hosted by me, Mark Norman. Find out more about my writing and research at www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore. The Folklore Podcast art director is Melissa Martell. Find her work at www.mdmcreate.com. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to, but it is an enormous amount of work to research, create, record and write two of these episodes every month. And so, we have created a simple way in which you can help to support the ongoing life of the Folklore Podcast. Please visit our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com and click on support. There are various ways that you can help, and they don't all involve giving us money. Even just leaving a simple review on iTunes or other podcast apps helps to grow our audience. So please do visit and take a moment to help us to keep going. Thank you for listening. The Folklore Podcast theme music is written and performed by Gurdy Bird. <laughs>